We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Lieb, founder of Lieb Capital Management and author of nine books and soon to finish his 10th. Steve, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Um, it's always a pleasure. I'm about as good as can be given what's happening in the world. Well, there's no lack of things to talk about, but you know, since you and I have talked so many times about China's rise, I thought we could kind of start by getting your reaction to the recent stock market performance and credit market issues. You know, where does this, you know, the reopening of China and in a way this slump that they're experiencing right now, where does that leave them? in your eyes? Tom, I think it has very little effect. If it does have any effect, it might scare off some foreigners. In this country, for example, Microsoft, well, today was a horrible day in the markets, but we have two, $3 trillion companies in this market of ours, the United States, Apple and Microsoft, both have valuations of $3 trillion. China's entire market from actually did these numbers last night. Let's see if I can remember is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 trillion at most of all the stocks. Most of their major stocks are available to us investors. You can buy them. The total valuation of all the stocks available in China to us investors would be about $800 billion less than one-third the capitalization of Microsoft. In other words, Microsoft is worth three times the value of all the stocks you can buy in China. Now, they do have one very large, I think the largest company in China is not available to U.S. or Western investors, is a liquor company. So, I mean, the Chinese, you know, they're they're not totally different than us. They'd like to, you know, imbibe every once in a while. And that company's worth actually more than their tech companies, but they don't want to be driven by their financial markets per se. They want to be driven by people's appetite for creating knowledge. And sometimes these two areas can collide with each other. You know, as an example, in this country, which always appreciated, Warren Buffett is no one. In fact, Valuation of Warren Buffett's company right now is about the same as the valuation of all the companies you can buy in China. I mean, you, Buffett, if he sold all his companies, could buy all the shares available in all the Chinese companies in this mm-hmm. country. And again, the total valuation of all those companies, when you include how they're valued in China, et cetera, which I can remember the exact number, but it must be something like 12 billion. The valuation of all our companies might be something like a hundred trillion. So you're talking about a market that's about one tenth the size of ours. For example, BYD, they're the largest electric motor company. They recently passed Tesla as being the largest electric car manufacturer in the world. Their valuation is one tenth that of Tesla yet. And this is what's amazing to me when you think about it. This valuation isn't because people, you know, don't value things made in China the same or 
they value them lower or they discount them because they're made in China. If you look at the chart of Tesla, you'll see a straight line, actually a little bit under the S&P until about 20, I think, 19, around mid-2019, Tesla took off like a rocket ship. And you know why it took off like a rocket ship? Because they had broken ground and were significantly on their way to building their first factory in China. And it was China, their business in China, that allowed them to become the world's you know, well, now they're still the most profitable oil company in the world, electric auto company in the world, but allowed them to become a monster company and really made Elon Musk, you know, the hero that he was. So, I mean, the value of Chinese stock market is not really the way of assessing how China is doing. It's important because it attracts money from the West and they do have a lot of private companies in China. But they have a lot of companies in which the state is the main owner and the public owns part of the company. But, you know, it's not controlled by the public. And, you know, that sounds not like a world I'm from. I mean, not really anyway. I mean, I, I was alive when those kinds of things happened in this country. I mean, AT&T was a basically public monopoly in this country. It was controlled by the government. They set the rates. AT&T, the original AT&T, not the AT&T that you might know now as Baby Bell, that is, you know, some territory that it has control over. But the original AT&T was this monolith. It was a monster company that controlled all the utilities related to communications or nearly all. In fact, not only the communication utilities, but also the products that went into them. I mean, the materials, they made the phones, they made the materials. And they also had something called Bell Labs. I may have mentioned this before on your show, because it's something for people to realize. And Bell Labs was by many measures, many people, I think if you ask the 100 scientists, what was the greatest laboratory the world has ever seen, people would probably say Bell Labs. I mean, we owe the laser to Bell Labs. They invented it. The transistor, which, in other words, semiconductors in the world that we know of as today, was born at Bell Labs. Information theory, how we talk on the phone and how you and I are communicating right now, came out of Bell Labs. Even the so-called Big Bang was born in Bell Labs. People were free in Bell Labs to just pursue their own work. And they worked in conjunction with the government and with other schools. I mean, I think they had a relationship with MIT, and I don't know if they had relationships with other schools, but I know they had a very strong relationship with MIT. They had a relationship with DARPA, et cetera, and was controlled by the government. And, you know, it doesn't mean that the public couldn't own it, but the government had the lion's share, the controlling share of the company. And... It was considered a widow's and orphan company. They paid dividends. They raised their dividend every year for, I don't know, a lot of years. But then, you know, along came the 80s. And suddenly, everything had to be utterly competitive and, you know, run by the financial interests. And one of the greatest and biggest paydays that the investment bankers in this country ever had was the day they were able to break up AT&T into chunks of different companies 
that operated the telephonic or communication systems in different parts of the country. And they were stuck with Bell Labs. What do we do with Bell Labs? They never made any money. They just created the basis for all of us making money. I mean, they created all the inventions and things like that. We'll put them with Lucent. I mean, because they seem to be in a similar kind of area. Well, Lucent went bankrupt. Make a long story short, what was probably the greatest research lab in modern history is now a company that has been bankrupt, I don't know, a couple of times or been, you know, associated as a laboratory that's been associated with a couple of bankruptcies. And I think, you know, a small part of Nokia, which is a Scandinavian telephonic company. They're a shadow of what they used to be is a wild exaggeration of what they are today. I mean, they're not even a shadow. So this kind of financial situation works. And it's sort of what China is looking at. They're not looking at stock valuations as much as looking at a very competitive, creative environment. That's what they want to try and create. And they have a culture which allows them to do this. It's a culture that's run by meritocracy. You know, Everyone is allowed to basically believe what they want to believe, but they've got to listen to the government. The government is going to make some important rules, but they call themselves people's democracy. Let me make this one thing clear, because people always accuse me of being a China file. I am not. I do not want to. I would never live in China. Russia, you know, Canada. I mean, there's a lot of countries I would live in, but China would not. Even if I spoke fluent Mandarin and Cantonese, it would not be first on my, not even 10th. It would not make the top, maybe the top 50, but it's not, not my choice. But I mean, they do the a reason, lot of things. The wrong. reason I bring that up and want to get your take on that is because it has been compared to, let's say, a barometer or a leading indicator for the world's economy and other developed economies. So if your manufacturing base is really suffering, that ends up spilling into these other, you know, more developed, let's say, consumer-driven economies. So that's why I asked that question that way. So in terms of consumer-driven, okay, I mean, the point is, is that the companies that may run some of the enterprises in China, they may be state companies, and the West, still going to be Westerners that value a lot of these companies, the important companies that are in China today. I mean, the farm companies, the companies that you can find in the Hong Kong exchange, that's a Western market. They're valuing these companies. BYD, which has one-tenth the valuation of Tesla, even though it's larger, that's being valued by Westerners. And it's crazy is what I'm trying to say. I mean, part of it is crazy. And part of it is the fact that China, it's not that important to China. It's not a lead indicator. I'll tell you what is a lead indicator for China. And what has to worry you is you never hear China talking about this. If you go back 10 years, whenever China did something really good, whenever they, you know, brought forth a new product or something like that, when they built the fastest computer, for a while they had the fastest supercomputer, they bragged about it. They were in these hacking contests. They always were a little bit ahead of Russia. And both Russia and China were ahead of us. And they would brag about that because they wanted to impress us. They really did. They liked our way of life. They wanted to be like us and they wanted us to respect them. But lately, you know, after 
being sanctioned after, you know, I don't know, these tariffs and what we've done, they don't tell us what they're doing anymore. I mean, one thing that they're proud of, I can assure you of this, they're very, very proud of the fact that, I assume that they would be very proud of the fact that Nature, which is a Western science magazine, they still, you know, are going to favor articles that are consistent with the Western narrative. That's the way they are, but they still do things independently. And one of the things they did do independently is they look at different countries and see how advanced they are scientifically. And now remember at the beginning of this century, 2001, when China entered the World Trade Organization, they were still a developing country. I mean, they still are a developing country, but they were way back. They didn't, you know, they, they did have the bomb, they had the nuclear and the uh, atomic bomb. But, you know, technologically speaking, they were nowhere. And in the latest report, Nature rates all the different countries in terms of scientific excellence. And they have a, you know, a good metric, a good way of doing it. How many citations did you get? How well recognized is the journal that does these citations. I mean, it's not something you could do by hand. You have to let a computer do it. You write a program and it takes into consideration, you know, a lot of things that you would want to be taken into consideration in evaluating how advanced this company, how important a company is to new scientific breakthroughs. Last year, for the first time ever, the United States was not number one in overall scientific achievement. It was China. Even more striking, and this I did not even believe at first, they came out with a second list. I mean, they call them indexes. If you ever see a copy of Nature and they have index in the corner, that's always interesting. I mean, because they have lists of companies. I like list rankings and things like that. They had a list of the 100 fastest growing scientific organizations in the world, A 100 of them. Out of those 100, guess how many were Chinese? Let me make clear. Nature's headline, and we were talking before the interview about the Nobel Prizes, Nature's headline when they introduced the Nobel Prize winners was that this was the most diverse collection of Nobel Prize winners ever. I mean, usually their headline prior to this year has been, this was the year we discovered this, this, and this, no, diversity. We had so many Blacks, so many women, so many of this, that. They're very woke. So, I mean, that's why I use them as a source. But anyway, getting back to nature's credentials, in looking at the 100 companies with the fastest growth rates in terms of scientific achievements, guess how many out of the 100 were from China? The majority. It's all over the world. What? The majority. Yes, it was the majority. Guess what number out of the majority? Well, I'll tell you this. It's somewhere in the 20s or 30s was one German college, university. Other than that, all 100, oh, 99 out of 100 were Chinese. I thought they had just done a survey on China, you know, the 100 best companies in China in terms of growth in scientific achievement. No, they'd done the whole world. And it just turned out that 99 out of those 100 were domiciled in China. That's mm. what they're proud of. Mm -hmm. That kind of achievement. I mean, that means a lot more to them and a lot more to the future. And it did to this country before. I don't think I grew up knowing what the capitalization of the stock market was. I mean, you know, Buffett, I'm old enough to remember when he said that 
once the stock market's capitalization gets to be the same as the GDP, it's too richly capitalized. It should not be capitalized as high as the GDP. In other words, if the GDP is 20 trillion, the stock market should be no more than 20 trillion. If it's 10 trillion, then it's probably cheap. If it's 20, it's expensive. I mean, don't quote me exactly, but it wasn't, you know, to get the largest capitalization. That was never the goal. The goal was to get the best products out, was long-term planning, long-term initiatives, et cetera, not short-term growth. And that changed in the 1970s. As I talked, I think it changed when we went off the gold standard. And now everything is basically short-term. China, it's not. China will invest billions of dollars in projects that might not pay off for five or 10 years. That's the same thing as Bell Labs, the transistor. That's why they had it separated from AT&T, because AT&T had to be a little bit more conscious of investors' needs. They had to be willing to raise the dividend every year, et cetera. They wanted to be as broad-based as possible, its ownership. So Bell Labs was separate. They made great use out of what Bell Labs produced. It just took maybe 10 years to do it instead of two or three years. Now we're judged by quarter to quarter changes. Now, Buffett always recognized this as being significant. One of the great secrets to his success was the fact that he never cared about the short term. He just cared about the longer term and creating value for his shareholders over the long term. That's one reason he was always very reluctant to split his stock. You had a position in his stock, he wanted you to keep that position and not sell it. And his A shares are, I don't know, $30,000, $40,000 a share. I mean, he was forced eventually to share, you know, come up with a second level of shares just to be in the S&P 500, I think. I'm not sure why, but he did. But he basically was a long-term thinker, and look where it got him. It got him to, you know, really number one. The other person that I know of, and I'm sure there are others, that is have done extremely well in the stock market was, was Jeff Bezos. Amazon, the fellow who owned Amazon, his first letter out to shareholders that he sent to shareholders is that if you're looking for quarter-to-quarter returns, If you want, you know, planning for what's our goal for the next year or so, don't buy our stock. We don't want you as shareholders. We want people that are willing to buy for the long term. And he proved it. He did buy for the long term. Now, I'll just leave you with one, one, one other thing about what's gone wrong. I mean, this was what, what all of America was like Buffett and Bezos back in the sixties, fifties, even the thirties and forties during the, you know, depression. I mean, So many of our inventions in this country were born out of the Depression. You know, people were still looking for long-term goals. I mean, that's what excited people. They wanted to create things for, you know, the good of mankind, not for the good of the officers of the company. But coming out of the Depression, we, we came out with, you know, fantastic number of patents and had a big edge and helped us win the Second World War, among other things. And it was that way, I would say, through the early 1970s. And then all of a sudden, it became quarter to quarter. How did you do this quarter? Everybody has an estimate for how their quarterly earnings are going to be. 
Last night, a stock that I own for my clients, AMD, came out with earnings, and the earnings were lower than expected. The stock went down 8 or 10%. I mean, it would be unheard of. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. They did exactly what they said. It was a few pennies or so lower. Reacts like this. Long term, nothing had changed with the company. I think it almost convinced me to stop staying up late at night to see you know, <laughs> how these companies are performing. I think that's an interesting point there that you make, Steve. Does that create more conviction in a company that you're already sold on and a buying opportunity because it's now 10%, let's say 8 to 10% totally. cheaper than it was yesterday? Tom, totally. You know, and I hate to admit this. When I look for leaders of companies today, I look for where they were educated, where they were brought up, and what does Microsoft, NVIDIA, AMD, all our best cybersecurity companies have in common, and Tesla. I have to include Tesla, too. What do they have in common? I'm sure I'm, I'm overlooking some company. But they're run by people that were educated in Asia or in the case of Tesla, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Musk came from South Africa. The head of NVIDIA, which is the star of AI right now, was educated in Taiwan. The head of AMD, which in about seven years ate Intel's lunch, went from a company whose revenues would have been rounding error for Intel a company larger than Intel, much larger in 10 years, came from a woman who was educated in Taiwan and knew a lot about semiconductors, was involved. She wasn't a bureaucrat. She was really, you know, she loved that business. She loved semiconductors. And she took AMD to of the general semiconductors from a company that was a tag along to a major leader. And I think in AI, I'm betting on her. I'm betting on NVIDIA. Microsoft, look at what happened. All of Microsoft's glory, or most of its glory, has come from the Indian guy that's managing the company. There's an Indian guy that's, oh, Google. I forget. I didn't name Google among the top, did I? No, Google's also run by an Indian, somebody whose major education took place not in America, but in India, in Asia. And yeah, I think it's very, very important in answer to your question to look at those companies, which look at the long term and take the long term as being their guideline. I mean, the trouble is so many of these companies have become so large that you know you can't double or triple your money again in them. AMD is probably the smallest of the companies that are being run by Asians right now. And curiously, it's been rumored and, and incredibly, and, and, and you know, not, not just a, a, a fun rumor, but it's been said that the head of NVIDIA is actually the uncle of the head of the dance micro devices. They're related. They're in the same, not, not only the same country, but the same family within that country. They take their education very, very seriously. It's a meritocracy. They're very close to their families. We used to be like that, Tom. We invented the semiconductor in this country. As I said, we invented the laser. We invented the internet. We invented all these products, but we invented them for the long term. I remember, I think his name's Nadella. When he took over Microsoft, he said, it's going to be the cloud. This is what we're going to focus on. 
And when he took them over, they were really still riding high from the monopoly they had created on Windows, Gates. But he took that company to a totally different level. Gates never would have been able to do that, especially from what I know about Gates now. Maybe it's all rumor, but anyway, I don't want to get into that. But I mean, he basically turned Microsoft into just an incredible company by not focusing so much on what they, you know, the PC, but focusing on doing AI in joint environment called Windows, where, you know, all computers were participating, et cetera. And he became number one in that area. Microsoft had, I think, no stake in Windows when he took over. I, I was a little bit nervous about it. And I should have owned it earlier for my clients. I don't buy much for myself. But I firmly believe, I want to say this at the outset, I love America. America in the 1960s and 70s, I think, was the greatest economy ever. And I think we can get back there. But I think we have to take some pounding and some punishment. I mean, we're not going to get back there just going along as usual. I mean, now all of a sudden, I don't know, I can't count the number of wars we're either involved in or almost involved in. I mean, at least three, China with Taiwan, the Mideast, and Ukraine. And we're we're losing all of them. I mean, this is no way to run a country. I mean, this is so antithetical to the United States that I grew up in. Where your boss, yes, he was different than you. He had a much higher salary than you, but he wasn't so different to be called a different religion. Today, the heads of these major companies, with the possible exception of Musk, I don't think Musk is, in spite of his wealth, something about him says that he does view things as sacred. There are sacred things. He, he thinks mankind should, you know, conquer the planets. He really does believe that. I mean, why would somebody spend $30 billion on Twitter just because he believes in free speech? I mean, he's a little bit different than some of the others, but I'm not sure about him. I'm saying that. But most of the people that are running the corporations, they care about the quarterly earnings. They want to make money. They really don't care about products that are going to better mankind. I mean, Musk just transplanted device into a brain. And he gets criticized for doing that. He's trying to help a quadriplegic. I mean, he's not going to get paid. You know, he's not going to make a fortune on this. But I think it's this ability to care about others and to work along with others. What I was saying about bosses in the 60s and 70s, not so much the 70s, 50s and 60s, they could sit down with their employees. I mean, their house might be 10 times larger than the employee's house, but they had a commonality. They all had bedrooms. They all had dining rooms. They all had bathrooms. And very few of them had swimming pools and saunas and ping pong rooms and pool rooms and a yacht stationed outside. I mean, no, very, even the richest, even Getty, who was then the richest guy in the world. I don't think he had a home like that. He may have had two or three that were pretty nice. But you could still relate to these people. They were relatable. Today, it's very hard to relate. Try relating to somebody like Zuckerberg. I mean, it's hard to relate to them. Now, some of these Asian people may be a little bit easier. They're accessible. I don't think they care so much about the money. They care about the success. They try and serve their shareholders to the best they can. Maybe they sold out. I mean, maybe they have. I really don't know enough, but I do know that. When I was growing up, 
the differences between the person running the company and the person working on the factory floor was not so great that they could not have dinner together. Mm -hmm. And today you can't have dinner with the secretary of the boss. I mean, she's too far above. I mean, you know, a worker even looking at the secretary of the boss. No, that's her. That's his secretary. Forget, you know, that's not for a worker to look at. I mean, yeah, she's beautiful, but whatever. It's different. And we've got to get back to that old kind of democracy where people are pulling in the same direction and they're pulling for the sake of progress. And I really think that's China's goal. I think it's Russia's goal, especially the way China has chosen to get to that goal does not appeal to me at all. I think Steve, let's, let's kind of jump off on that tangent, if you will. Does America need some type of extrinsic event forced upon it for everybody to focus and pull in the same direction rather than everybody you know, fighting about what color hair you want to have this week or what your pronouns are? Right. I think that's a great question. And it was one that I was thinking about. I'm terrible at remembering names. It's not because I'm old. I've always been, I've always called my wife by my dog's name, my children. They <laughs> always get mixed up. But there was a, I do remember the name of the book. It's called The Great Leveler. And it was an incredibly erudite book. I didn't read every page of it. Basically attacks that same question you just asked me. And unfortunately, and I, and I've been hoping against it almost everything I've been writing. I wrote a book called Red Alert, which you can tell by the title is not pro-China. It's saying China's a threat to our way of living. And I wrote that book and, you know, warning people. That wasn't so in the last book I wrote, The Rise of China and the New Age of Gold. I mean, China's there and they're now number one in almost all technologies and they won't even admit it. That's what I wanted to say before. They, they don't tell us how good they are. We found out they were ahead in supercomputers because they did a quantum experiment in which they needed a supercomputer and they published the quantum experiment. And that's how people found out that they were so far advanced in supercomputers, despite all our sanctions. They have an industry of supercomputers. They didn't even mention that. She told them about five or six years ago, don't participate in the hacking contest anymore. We don't want to, you know, we don't have to have that, you know, we don't need that kind of, we're not trying to impress the U.S. anymore. They're trying to hurt us. You know, it was hard for them to admit that. But I think that we do need an event. I mean, this is what this man says, when you have these kinds of incredible inequalities, which we have in this country, and I can give you an example, one that really just shook me up the other night when I did the math in it. And it's simple math. It's something anyone can do. We never had these kinds of crazy inequalities. They have existed before. They existed in the Weimar Republic. And the Weimar Republic ended with massive inflation, hyperinflation. Was it 100% a month or something at its worst? You know, they had gross inequalities and they got it back together again. And then for a while until Hitler came, Germany really turned it around. It's unfortunate that they did not have enough time to really turn it around because Hitler, I don't think there would have been Hitler had there not been a depression in the West. So it took the hyperinflation, et cetera. This man 
wish I remembered his name. The name of the book, I do remember it, is called The Great Leveler. And his argument is exactly what you said, exactly what you asked me. No, you cannot go from an economy, a society in which there are these incredible disparities. I mean, in our society, if you're in the bottom 50%, you're struggling to find necessities for life. You really are. No, you don't go from that kind of society to a more, I'm not talking about egalitarian, I'm talking a democratic society, but one in which everyone is pulling in the same direction, like we had in the 60s, the 70s, the 50s, the 40s. I mean, we survived the Civil War, for goodness sakes. I mean, everyone says that the Civil War was a war about slavery. It wasn't a war about slavery. White men have been slaves. I mean, almost every ethnicity has had their period where they've been slaves to others, not just African-Americans. The war, yes, slavery was horrible. Everybody agrees it was ugly. But the reason we fought the Civil War was because the Union was breaking apart and we needed a war. But democracy remained democracy. And that was amazing. I mean, what Jefferson set up, it survived that. And, you know, for country became even greater after the Civil War, more united. I mean, it took a while and African-Americans are still paying a dear price. I mean, people don't realize African-Americans have only been on their own in this country since, what, 1865? That's less than 200 years. The Chinese civilization is 7,500 years old. We're not going to be like, don't expect that from a group of people that have been in this country for 150, 200 years. No, don't expect it from this country, which is only 250 years old. That's the only one criticism I have of Buffett. He's always saying America, never bet against America. It's been around 250 years or what, 300 years. And it's nothing. 300 years is not a particularly long time for a civilization. And if we're going to last as a civilization, we're going to have to have the right kind of culture and beliefs that we all pull in the same and we all have respect for each other. That's what it's really about. We all have respect and we all have limitations. We all are different. We all deserve respect, though, because we're different. This is what Jefferson believed. This is what Tolstoy believed. This is what Keats believed. Uh, he's a great poet. Wittgenstein. I mean, you know, there's this commonality. And the respect comes because you recognize there's this out here, which I'm hitting, material stuff that, you know, our physics come from. And there's this stuff in here. What is beautiful? What defines beauty to you? I mean, it's different for everybody. And that's the kind of equality we had. We respect that. If you think this Picasso just looks like crap. I mean, you shouldn't be ostracized for that. If you think that it's not a beautiful piece, it's okay. I mean, you're you. You you have a right to your own way of looking at things in a non-material sense. What's beautiful, beauty is beauty, but it's different for every person. And for some people, it's a mathematical equation. For some people, it's a beautiful piece of art. For most of the world, as we've talked about before, it's gold, but Again, if we're ever going to get to that spot again, where we respect one another, all pulling in the same direction, and the fact that I have a, a lot of academic degrees means nothing. I remember 
nothing for my schooling. I mean, I did. I was extremely good academically. And it's not why I'm decent at what I'm doing right now. It's because I, you know, I, I know what my weaknesses are. That's much more important than knowing my strengths. And I think anyone can do what I do. Most anyone. To get to that kind of point where, you know, I can say that I'm not special in any way, shape or form. Everybody is special and no one is special. That's the kind of country I was brought up in. And it's a wonderful country. And it can be a democracy. And that's what democracy is. It's like love. It's different for everybody. But I mean, there's sort of a commonality that we all agree that in our own way, we're going to do the most we can. And in my way, I write books that are not popular. I've had one popular book by accident or two books that were popular by accident. That's not my way. Could not write a bestseller to save my life. I'm not good at that, but I'm good at certain things and I'll try and maximize that. Everyone was like that in the country in which I grew up. And I remember my grandfather saying the great thing about America is that everybody can afford the essentials of life. When he said everybody didn't mean literally a hundred percent, but the vast majority of the country could afford the essentials of life. He illustrated it with a Gillette shaver. He said, there's no shaver better than this Gillette shaver. And he was part of the American dream. You know, he came up, he was kind of a rotten guy in many ways, but he respected that about America, that, you know, you had to respect people. And it's very important. And getting there from where we are right now, no, it's going to take a lot of tumult. A lot of, it's going to take a tumultuous event. And we may be very close to it. I think we're, in fact, I think we're frighteningly close to something that's going to happen. For example, can see either a replay of something like the Weimar Republic in this country, or I could see a replay of a stock market crash that at least resembles what happened in the 1930s, not what we saw in 2008, something much, much worse. You know, we're just so far off in this country at this point. Just don't see a way back unless we have a tumultuous event. And if we do, then have a lot of confidence in America. If we come through that tumultuous event, we don't have to worry about China being ahead of us now. They won't be ahead of us for long. I mean, I think democracy, if we can preserve democracy in the context of a really tumultuous event that takes the stock market down 90% or takes inflation up to hyperinflation levels, and we come out of that, I think we'll come out of it possibly as the greatest country in the world, even though for a while we're no longer. I mean, China has passed us scientifically. They've passed us in size of their economy. You mentioned manufacturing. They account for about 30% of the world's manufacturing, almost twice what we account for. China's manufacturing base right now is higher than us, plus Japan, plus most of Europe. China outproduces, and all major supply lines go through China. If our desire is to try and conquer China, forget it. We're not going to do it. If our desire is to become better than China again, to become what we once were, which was a much better economy than China, from my point of view, much freedom and, you know, success in virtually everything. These Olympic Games, I mean, you know, now we're second, third. I mean, we used to be, you couldn't find an event in which the U.S. was not number one. When I was growing up, I, maybe I'm idealizing that period of time. 
But once the Kennedys were assassinated, it was essentially over for this country. And it's punctuated by going off the gold standard. It's been downhill and we're sliding very, very fast right now. I'm shocked at how fast we're sliding. And I think we're headed, not saying next month, but it's not measured in decades. I can tell you that. It's most measured in years. Russia is now head of BRICS and they've been talking about a basket of currencies backed by gold. That's what Putin's been talking about for some period of time. And actually, that's what I thought when I wrote my book, last book, the 2020 book. I mentioned that as a possible solution. And I said, yeah, the thing that I'm not sure of, I'm pretty sure this is where we have to be headed. Because like I mentioned on your previous show that gold is very special. It's the only form of money that is actually a store value. That's all I'll say about gold. If you look at the dollar, take a $100 bill, look at it. It's backed by the good faith of the U.S. government, whose debt level is $34 trillion and cannot pay interest on that debt unless they raise more money. We're at a point who's going to buy this debt. That's the issue right now. We may not have enough buyers. We had an auction last year in which enough buyers did not show up. So, I mean, basically, you monetize things. And if you monetize things, you're going to have wide-eyed inflation. If you don't monetize things and try and keep control, you'll have a massive recession. I mean, really, I'm not trying to scare or be frightened because I think for our progeny, you know, our kids and our, our, our nephews and nieces and, you know, the young and their children, I think this could be a wonderful thing. I think it could bring America back to the greatest country that ever lived. But I can't see us doing this seamlessly. We're too far off track. We have killed probably in our wars since the beginning of the century. 9-11 was certainly part of it. But, you know, we were already falling before that. I mean, there's a lot of people that think 9-11 was a conspiracy. I don't. I think it was the Saudis, et cetera, that did that. But I can, you know, point you to stations on YouTube where they say it was planned. It was planned because we wanted to go into the Middle East in order to get the oil. That's what some people say. I mean, that's not the country I grew in. No one would suggest that. I don't believe it. But in the country I grew up in, no one would even suggest that as a possibility. Yet, it is suggested. And one thing that is basically true is that we have been at war every day of the 21st century. There hasn't been a day in the 21st century where the United States has not been killing people either by proxy or directly, mostly by proxy. I mean, the estimates now are about a half a million Ukrainians. And you know what people don't talk about in that war is, A, we were fighting Russia, who basically got back on their feet when Putin came in. Putin's not Stalin. I mean, people, again, this is part of the psyche we have in this country. Nothing is sacred. The only thing that's sacred is something material, something you can touch. And we don't distinguish among people. If you're a worker, you're a cog in a machine. Except now in manufacturing, we realize that you need certain skills to perform manufacturing. And the best jobs in America for, you know, a typical American might be in manufacturing. They don't have the education. They have the education, but they didn't pay attention. When they were in school, literally, I know people that teach at the best public schools in this country. Kids that can't afford private schools are worse because you have to sign a pledge if you go to a private school that you're woke. I mean, there's no such thing as gender. 
Gender is what you decide it is. And you could decide it at 10 years old. I think in Britain, they recently changed the law from seven to seven and a half. I'm not making this up. It used to be at seven years old, you could decide what gender you were. Now they change it to seven and a half. I mean, I could carry on about this forever. That has to go. And in public schools, that kind of thing is not as present as in private schools. The best private schools in New York are just horrifying. They really did tremendous amount of damage to one of my children and to another child. I think he was fine. He's okay. He's doing well. But it could have gone the other way with him, too. It really could have. And that's why you see all these teenage suicides. This is no secret. Our life expectancy, Tom, if you had to pick one measure of health, one measure and only one measure, what would you pick? Pick life expectancy. It's gone down in this country to where it was in the 90s, in the 90s. I don't want to live like that. I want to live like we did in in the 60s and 70s, where we had among the highest life expectancies. And if we did, it's because we were kind of group of different people. And some people, they weren't as healthy, et cetera, but they became, their progeny were healthy. We could be that way again. But your question is right on. I mean, I'm so glad you asked that. And I'm so sorry I went on and on and answering it. But no, we're not going to get back to where we were without something really horrible happening to the economy. I'm sorry to say that. I hope I'm wrong, incidentally. This is one of the things I really hope I'm wrong about, but I don't see any evidence that I am. I mean, today you have a bunch of Jews, Victoria Newland, et cetera, siding with the Nazis in Western Ukraine. Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine were never supposed to be the same country. Stalin put them together because he had nothing to do one day. It wasn't a committee that we assigned. Should these two countries be together? No, they're completely different. One's Russian. And once, you know, Polish and Romania or whatever it is, I mean, they speak different languages. They have different beliefs. One sided with the Nazis, one didn't side with the Nazis. Who are we siding with? After the World War, in which we were lucky to have Russia on our side, if we didn't have Russia on our side, I don't know how that war would have ended. I mean, the Battle of Stalingrad was, I think there were millions and millions and millions of Russians killed. And that basically destroyed Germany on the Eastern Front. And we came in 1944. We did great things. And our men were amazingly heroic. And we, you know, provided Russia and other Nazi enemies with the latest and greatest equipment that was made at that time. We made that equipment, the United States. I mean, so even though we weren't fighting that war, it was across the sea. I mean, we were at the end and we were we were incredibly good at it. I mean, our army was incredibly well organized. and weaponized. We had the greatest and best weapons, the best, you know, ways of calculating. I mean, the entire West, it was Turing who broke the German code. I mean, these sorts of achievements, the intellectual achievements, we were so good at that. Today, our weapons are no match for Russian weapons. If they have a high, you know, this story I'll never forget. Sorry to go on. But China launched a hypersonic missile across the globe, circled the globe, and landed within a mile where they wanted it to land. And they were very upset. They wanted it to land within feet, but it landed within a mile. General Milley at that time, who was, you know, you can say good and bad things about Milley. I sort of think he got caught up in things. I mean, you know, the reason you need to be shaken up 
is that everybody gets caught up in it. It's just hard to resist. It's hard to resist not being a con. But we're going to have to turn things upside down. And there's going to be a lot of suffering in this country, which is one reason I recommend gold. You don't want money per se. One of the qualities of money that's listed, if you look at money, you will see store of value, usually listed as one of the top characteristics. Our money is anything but a store of value. It's paper, period. That's all it is. It represents paper that, you know, because of the grace of the U.S. government, represents something. But who is, let me ask you, who's going to buy our bonds now? You know, the only reason we're still around in this game is because we control the financial system of the world. You know, our currency is the reserve currency. That that might not be the case for very much longer. Russia has been whole hog. Saudi Arabia, no country wants to be sanctioned. Look what we did to Europe. I thought Europe was an ally of ours. Didn't you think Europe was an ally of ours? Um, Three years ago, if I had said, let's say in 1919, if we had had a chat like this, and I said, who are our strongest allies? Would Germany be somebody you named? We destroyed them. Germany is no longer an industrial country. They can't afford the gasoline. They can't afford the energy. They were getting it from Russia. We destroyed the North Stream. I mean, I don't care what anyone, Seymour Hersh, I'll believe on that one. He is credible. And if it wasn't Seymour Hersh, it was the Brits. And if it wasn't the Brits, it was Ukraine. And if it was Ukraine, it was with our help, period. Those are the only candidates. To come out with the story that four men on a boat destroyed this massive block of infrastructure is just crazy. And we believe it. We believe what we're told. We've lost any sense of meaning that is unique to ourselves. That's what really worries me. We've got to get that back. And yes, I mean, I think that's the most important question you can ask. And I'm sorry I went on for so much time, but I don't think there's a more important question you can, if you really love what America used to be, and I'm old enough to tell you, to, to remember it, and to cherish that, you're not. But <laughs> you know, it's getting rarer and rarer to find people that can remember that. But I do remember that. And those were great, great times. You didn't feel envy. All these crazy things that we have that are all based on materiality did not exist then. Steve, um, let me ask you a question about gold. You know, you bring it up in a couple different contexts here. Do you try to challenge your ideas about gold to really make sure that you're not in an echo chamber, A, and B, just, you know, trying to look at it from the same perspective? Like, do you challenge your ideas about gold? I challenge my ideas about everything. I really do. I mean, I'm trying to just, you know, consider myself a person that sometimes is pretty good at things, sometimes stinks at things. I mean, I'm always challenging myself ideas. And when it comes to something so important, something that I so much do believe in, which is gold, I am constantly challenging my ideas, constantly trying to find where I could be wrong and constantly learning, you know, different ways in which I was right. If you would ask me on our previous show, what's a good reason that gold serves the purpose it does? I wouldn't have thought of store value. That was a recent idea that came to me. And if somebody had presented something else as a store of value that, you know, believe could be a store of value, it would change my view of gold. 
everything I read and look at that's related to gold, I, I don't not read anything, everything related to gold, especially people who hate it, like Charlie Munger, Buffett's number two man who recently died, despised gold. Buffett had a, an analogy saying, would you rather have a bunch of farmland, Exxon stock, you know, listed a whole bunch of things, or would you rather have a swimming pool full of gold? Well, I take the gold. I mean, you're comparing, first of all, apples and oranges. I mean, I hate to think about it. I'm not being, you know, flip about it. But, you know, he was extraordinarily good when it came to money, making it especially. And you think about what he's saying. And the comparison is not between gold and the stock market. The comparison is between gold and the dollar. Gold is a store of value. It's meant to be a currency. It's valued as a currency. And so if he wants to ask me, would I rather have an entire world stacked with $100 bills or all the gold in the world? It's a no-brainer. You know, the amazing thing is, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, and it occurred to me, what am I doing? You know, I'm doing something that's wrong. I mean, this is wrong. Why not take all the dollars, buy the gold, and then have dollars left over? That's what I've done. <laughs> I took, you know, I, you know, to the extent that I've you know done all right, basically gold is what I have. That's my own. Don't I shouldn't say this because I can't do that for clients. Clients don't come to me for me to buy gold. I try and give them some gold as much as I can. I mean, SEC would let me buy gold that much as much gold as I wanted to buy for my clients. I, I may end up doing that if I feel that we're really that close to Armageddon. Basically, the reason I just own gold. I mean, there's two reasons. One, I truly believe in it. Two, I don't want to ever conflict with my clients. My clients have to come first. And I realize I can now work out that kind of compromise. Yes, there would have been stocks that I may have bought that I felt very strongly about at a particular time. The thing about gold, when gold has a great day, you find out your portfolio is still the same. I mean, we're not maybe half a percent or one, you know, gold's not the thing to own if you like the excitement of the stock market. So it's allowed me that kind of freedom to be, you know, more free to manage money in a way that I think is consistent. But rules are no rules. Rules be damned. I mean, if we get what I consider to be close to a real, to the end, I think we've already passed the point of inflection where, you know, catastrophe is inevitable. If I can see the catastrophe happening, I will buy as much gold for everybody as I possibly can. And if they all fire me, they all fire me. I mean, you know, that'll be the case. But in answer to your question, yes, I'm always checking. And one of the things I did that was wrong that even convinced me further was I looked at the performance of all major asset categories since the beginning of this century. I looked at gold. I looked at silver. I looked at copper. I looked at the S&P with dividends reinvested. I looked at, you know, bonds, every major index of the ones that you would think the S&P 500 did very well with dividends reinvested, even though we had that crash in 0809. We still did exceptionally well. Gold, right as of now, over the past 25, 24 years, has outperformed the S&P since 2000, outperformed it by 200 percentage points. I would have been better off if I had never managed money. If I everybody that had come to me, I said, forget about it. You're not going to do as well with me as you will if you just put everything in gold. 
you know, maybe there'll be times if I'm lucky, I'll catch a technology thing. I'll, I'll be right on a technology. But basically, gold has been the best asset to own, not only as it kept its value against inflation. I mean, it's outperformed everything because we've been living in a very uncertain world where accidents can and will happen. Now we're living in a world in which accidents are almost certain. And the closer we get to that, I think the more important gold becomes. And, you know, in answer to your question, if someone showed me a store of value that had these qualities of gold, you know, it's considered beautiful by people ranging from Simone Weil to man in the Chinese street, man in the Americans, even Americans still. I mean, that's one thing. Most Americans' minds, that is still somewhat sacred. Gold. It's very hard to find a Canadian or American that wouldn't say gold is beautiful. And they're not even looking at the pure stuff. The pure stuff is it's impossible to destroy. I mean, yes, I do try and marshal evidence that, you know, favors gold. But any negative article you want to send me on gold, I will read much more carefully than a positive article. Because, yeah, if there's something better, I want to know it. I want to be, you know, I want to help, not hurt people. I don't want to be right for the sake of being right. I want to be right if it helps. You know, it's not that unusual. That's the way everybody was, Tom, in this country. That's the way all my classmates, when I was in graduate school and college, they were that way. They all, basically, we all pulled in the same direction. We tutored one another. I mean, you know, I remember tutoring people in calculus. And people that I tutored did better than I did on the exam because I always make terrible, careless mistakes. And I decided I'm not going to any more of these classes. I'll learn it from the book and I'll still tutor. Just I'm not a good exam taker. I mean, that's I make careless errors, like I forget names and things like that. And so far, you have a nice name, Tom. I can remember, but there are other people. You know, I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. And I know that my strengths are not there all the time. Sometimes they're not present. They're just not present. I use this information as much as I can in making my decisions. I mean, you know, we're human beings. We're fallible. We make terrible mistakes. And I'm not excluded from that. And I'm always looking for reasons that I'm wrong because I have been wrong so often. I mean, don't try and cover it up when I'm wrong. To be very honest, when I first started writing about the importance of resources was in a book called Defying the Market, which I was still a very, very good book. And it talked about China even there. But I was way wrong. I mean, I thought that gold would become much more prominent before it did. I did not realize at that time what control, how much, how valuable America's control of the monetary, the world monetary system was. I did not realize that. I thought America was going to drift lower and continue to drift lower, but I did not ever realize that they had the kind of control they do. But now, you know, with BRICS and accepting most of the oil producers, who knows who they'll accept and Russia running it, could be sometime real soon because I don't know what happens to our debt. That's what killed Germany. They had all this debt and no way of paying it. It wasn't backed up. Eventually, they got out of the situation by backing up their debt with land. That's how the Weimar Republic, they took a trillion Deutschmark and made it one new Deutschmark. And that Deutschmark was backed up by German land. Maybe we'll have to do something equivalent to that. Or maybe we'll just live through a depression we've never seen before. 
Chinese stocks are valued at about one-tenth our stocks. And Chinese has a larger economy, looking at purchasing power parity. To see our stock market going down 90 or 95% is well within reason. I hate to say it, and I'm not a gloom doomsdayer. But, you know, you ask the question, can we get out of this without suffering a lot? And I think it's going to be very, very, very hard. I think nothing's impossible. Can't say nothing's impossible. That's a contradiction. But can say, you know, it's possible. Yes, but it's extremely, extremely remote that if we're ever going to get back to where we were, and I think we can, we're going to have to go through a tremendous shakeout. I mean, a shakeout of unprecedented proportions. When I talk about the Weimar Republic, that's the first thing that comes to mind, where our money all of a sudden becomes worthless. No one wants it. And if you look at what these sanctions have done, basically they made China, who wanted to impress us with all their great, you know, successes, hide their successes. We don't know what China has. We have no idea how advanced China is. We know they're extraordinarily well advanced in quantum technologies because of the articles they've published. They're extraordinarily well. Well, that's what Millie said. When Millie saw that rocket circled the earth, and land within a mile of where China said, he said, this is a Sputnik moment. And we immediately made him take that back. Now, why did we make him take it back? Because a Sputnik moment, Russia launched a satellite that circled the globe and made us believe that we were definitely behind Russia in the space race. As a result, we put all our resources into education. STEM, everything. And we beat them by years. I mean, you know, within a decade, we were well ahead. I mean, it's questionable whether we were ever really that far behind. But, you know, we addressed it not by sanctioning Russia, not by trying to destroy, not by shooting Sputnik down. No, we did it by building Sputniks that went to the moon and landed people on the moon where people could walk. Uh, this is not America. America is a country that believes it can do better than anyone else and really can. They talk the talk and walk the walk. That's what we did for most of my formative years. It was great. There's no one that I envied particularly. And, you know, it was all good. I remember telling my son, who's a mathematician, I, I said to him, because I didn't want him to ever be ruled by envy of anybody. And I said, Willie, you know, you're really quite good at a lot of things, but there are always going to be people that are better. There are going to be people that see things a little bit faster than you, etc. But you know, the only thing that counts in the end is that you also see them. If someone sees something really quickly, it doesn't mean they're better than you. It's a question of your drive to use what you know and try and create something with it. That is what really determines it. Our religion, if there is a religion in our country today, it's science. And our science, what we call science, is totally controlled by money. I was so going to say, I think go. you should reword that. The religion should be money, not science. It is. It is. Well, in the sense that, yes, money is the root of our religion. The biblical saying is the love of money is the root of all evil. And one of those evils is that we've made science a religion. Okay, but money is sort of what sits on top of the religion. 
I mean, if there's a higher deity, for instance, and we worship him, I mean, in a non-organized religion, you know, the deity would be possibly equivalent to money. The worshiping would be equivalent to science. We worship science as our religion. And science was created by money. And that wasn't the way it was with Bell Labs. Everybody was allowed to do whatever they thought would help. And they worked together. I mean, this thing about togetherness, that all being equal, is such a simple thing. My wife bought me a uh, T-shirt for Christmas. It meant a lot to me. It's Jefferson's, you know, Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. All men have equal rights to freedom, opportunity, et cetera, life, freedom, opportunity. And, you know, that's all we have to get back to. But it's going to be a very tough road. The much more important problem is creating a sustainable world. Once we have a sustainable world, I think that the psyche of the typical American is tops. And I include Canadians. I'm not excluding Canadians. I, you know, I mean, you know, talking to you is always so refreshing because I think you really sincerely believe, you know, not everything I say. I mean, I hope not. I hope you think I'm an idiot in certain ways, but I'm sure you do. But it's okay. But I mean, the point is you listen. And, and that's what we don't do anymore in this country. We're not willing to accept or change based on what other people say. I'm always, I mean, the biggest fault I have is that I'm probably too willing to change. I mean, sometimes. And I have to change back. And this happens in the stock market all the time to me. But, you know, that's where we stand. We have to accept where we're at today. We have to accept that it's going to be very rough and we should do whatever we can to try and cushion it rather than fight it. And we should cooperate as soon as possible with the BRICS. They're, you know, basically starting to dominate the world. And there was a meeting within the past week. There'll be a meeting in October. And we, we should get on board this gold-backed currency. doesn't have to mean gold stays flat at one area. But, I mean, it would be to the world's benefit and would be to America's benefit. And, again, it would put everybody on equal footing. I don't think China, China doesn't want to conquer the world. I think the last war was with Korea. I mean... I wasn't even aware of the Korean War when it was happening. That's how long ago that happened. They were involved in World War II because the Japanese attacked them. I don't know when the last time, other than a skirmish with India up in these highlands in which they had a basic street fight. I don't think anyone was killed. I mean, they were fighting with knives and fists. You know, I don't think China's had a war. I don't know when the last war they had. Well, the last war they had, the big war, was the Civil War. But before the Civil War, I mean, and what started the Civil War is that they were always being humiliated. There were the opium wars. They missed out on the Industrial Revolution because of wars that people started. I mean, they were always being attacked. And they just said enough. You know, we want to make our country not so easily attackable. But if you look at their weaponry, it's all defensive. They're not seeking bases in other parts of the world. They want to be defensive. And I'm not saying it's a great country in terms of the government that I want to live under. No, I don't want to live under that kind of government. I never would. But right now they have something to offer and we should accept it gracefully and then bide our time. Think a long term. 
think over the next 50, maybe even 100 years, we'll be number one again. Our children can rule, not rule, but our children can be at the top of the heap in a country. Maybe I don't know how long, how many years it'll take. But I think that we're a very, very creative people. We can be if we're let. But if we're all just cogs, just, you know, nodding our heads to everything everybody says, we have no chance whatsoever. None. Something has to shake us up, Tom. Something has to shake us up. Well, do agree with that to kind of refocus everyone's attention on probably A, what's important, and B, the direction we should be heading in. I don't think it's going to be painless. And hopefully we can, as you say, we can get through it as a country here and and still be able to exist on the other side of it. And maybe we end up, most of the people end up understanding that gold is a part of that. It has to be time. Reset of the the one thing. It's the one thing that can tie together what's in our heads is immaterial. It's sacred. Gold, I mean, in China, in every religion, you cannot name a religion in which gold does not play a sacred role. It doesn't, its role is not money. It's funny when you go to Google and you Google what, what, what does gold mean for China? They'll say money. But then, you know, you'll go to, you know, sites that are a little bit more informed. And at Chinese New Year's, which I guess is coming up, you'll see red and gold, mostly red, but gold. Gold for China symbolizes spiritual values, spiritual awareness. That's what it means. That's what we've totally lost. We've lost the spiritual in this country. There is no more spiritual. There's science. Science has replaced the spiritual. We need to get back that spiritual, that sense, that spiritual will give us a sense of equality. And the only thing that sort of can combine the material, which is we're in search, which is the only thing we're in search of now and be spiritual at the same time is gold. I mean, I haven't found anything that's close to that, that can so well combine that, that can be regarded as once beautiful, a non-material idea. It's beautiful. It just, you know, we seek it for its beauty for so many reasons, impossible to destroy, et cetera. You can dissolve gold in acid and then retrieve it a hundred years later. It'll still be gold, the same that was dissolved. I mean, these are kind of miraculous things. We don't even know how gold was made. We thought it didn't come from this solar system that we're sure of. Whether two grand great stars collided. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is what science is saying, <laughs> not me, but it's a very, very special metal. Now, Yes, it's always possible that, you know, I've missed the boat. But I mean, you know, this is not some sort of cockeyed, you know, crazy man's belief in something just for the sake of, you know, saying something different. I mean, people have to realize that you need the sacred in your life. And, and, you know, it's very, very difficult to find sacred when money becomes so important. And the only thing that has proved its worth combining these two, and for good reason, has been gold. That's where we started doing well. And once it became clear we were off the gold standard, all of a sudden insurance in this country became a hodgepodge of a 100 different companies where the president of an insurance company would make more money than the finest doctor in the country. I mean, this is not the way things should be. I mean, yeah, maybe the same and maybe, but gold is the only thing 
that I have come across that sort of is able to combine these two things together. It's not Bitcoin. There's nothing sacred about Bitcoin. It's the creation of a blockchain, which the Chinese can probably already crack. I mean, literally. I mean, if we, if you want to give the world to the Chinese as things stand right now, the fastest and best way of doing that would probably make Bitcoin the reserve currency because they'll crack it. Quantum computing is not going to solve all our problems. So one thing it'll be able to solve is factoring and all these codes that, you know, protect Bitcoin is based on a problem that quantum computer can solve in seconds. Literally. I mean, you don't want that. Gold is something you can't, by contrast, something you can't destroy. Bitcoin can be destroyed in seconds if you have the right tools. No matter what tools you have, you cannot destroy gold. Impossible. I mean, so far from what we know can exist in almost any kind of climate. It's got these properties that you want to meld the sacred with the material. And hopefully we'll see it that way. And not us, then our progeny or, you know, people that are related to us today, their lives will be incredibly enriched. And they may be, in certain ways, the most creative again in the world, as we once were. We once were incredibly creative. Steve, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up for today to, you know, end on that note of gold being. It's probably too long, Tom, already I've gone on and on, but I'm sorry about that. That's all good. Of course, for anybody that wants to read more of your articles and your writing, Stephen Lieb, PhD, Substack, and on Twitter, at Lieb, PhD, right? And the website, StephenLieb.com. I'm not encouraging anyone to buy my books or subscribe to my market letters. What I really think is important, I put in those websites and those sites that you named. Hmm. So if you want to subscribe to my letter, I won't turn it away, but it's not, you know, just click X and I'll be happy if you go to the site. I'll be thrilled if you read the articles, any of those sites, and you don't have to pay a cent to get to them. So that's it. Thanks, Tom. I really always so much enjoy this show. I think your viewers are very, very lucky to have you. And, you know, it's a lot of fun and really good. Thank you very much for having I, me. I appreciate that, Stephen. I appreciate your time as well today. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.